Let me begin this morning by saying something about last Sunday. If you were here in worship or able to join us in worship online, I shared a story about the calling of the disciples and focused on what they left behind in order to make the choice to say yes and follow Jesus. And in our reflection together in the sermon last week, I talked about some of the things we might leave behind in our lives, including our possessions and our busyness, among other things. And I'll tell you what, something about that message last week struck a chord or maybe a nerve with quite a few of you. I got more feedback to last Sunday's sermon than I ordinarily do in a month of sermons. Uh, some of that was perhaps because we shared a spectacular breakfast together in community following worship. But I heard from a lot of you who said, yeah, you're right. We've got too much stuff in our lives, both literally and figuratively. A lot of you talked about feeling compelled to go home and to begin sorting through and giving away lots of your stuff. And in those conversations, several of you had the same idea, maybe we're on the same wavelength, and thought to yourselves, you know what we really need to do is to have a church-wide garage sale. And I had two thoughts in response to that. One, that's a great idea. Two, I'm not going to have anything to do with that idea. We came from a church in Chicago that had an epic annual garage sale, and it was spectacular. We raised $150,000 every year for mission, uh, but it was a ton of work. And uh, if there are a group of you that feel called by Jesus to organize a garage sale this spring, I promise that we will bring boxes of stuff to contribute, and I will be here on sale day to work. If some of you all organize it, I think that is a great, great, great idea. <laughs> Here's another great idea. Let's get into the word this morning. So this winter, I said, we're going to be following the stories of Jesus according to the gospel of Mark. And uh, while we're a couple of weeks in, I want to pause at the start to remind us of how Mark starts this gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. In fact, this is a verse that's worth memorizing for yourself as we lean into this devotion this winter. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Say that with me. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is letting us know what this whole book is going to be about. This good news, this gospel. The word gospel there, or good news, is that Greek word from which we get our English words evangelist, or evangelism, or evangelical. And we know that those words in 21st century America have been laden with lots of other social constructs and meanings, but we take them at their root and at their heart. To be an evangelist, to share the uh, evangelos, is to share good news, the gospel. And this good news, this beginning, is going to be from Jesus Christ. And I know you already know this, but it's important to remind ourselves that Christ is not Jesus' last name. 
right? We sometimes get caught into thinking that as if Jesus is standing outside a crowded restaurant with the disciples and suddenly there's an announcement, Christ, party of 13, Christ, your table's ready. No, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It would be more accurate in the English to say Jesus, comma, the Christ. Christ is a title. It's another Greek word that really means the anointed one or a word from which we extrapolate to mean Messiah, the one who is chosen by God, the son of God. And so Mark is cueing us right from the beginning of this good news, that it comes from Jesus the Christ, the one who was anointed by God, and therefore, in paying attention to what Jesus says and does, we'll learn something about the nature and character of God and, by extension, our relationship with God and God's relationship with us. And so we begin each of these stories now over these next 10 weeks in Mark with that framework in mind. And There's a second framework that's important to remember too. Just a few verses down in chapter one, where I started last Sunday morning, just before Jesus calls those first disciples, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, and he begins by saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, repent and believe in the good news. As I suggested last Sunday, that word repent often for us, and I confess this is true for me too, is defined in an unnecessarily narrow way. That to repent is to confess a sin of something wrong that we've done or something good that we've left undone, and we repent of that, we acknowledge it. Uh, so that we can be forgiven and turn our lives in a new direction. That definition is appropriate, that's okay, but it's only a part of the definition of repent, which at its root has a wider, broader, deeper sense of what it means for us to have a change of mind or a change of heart, to turn our lives from one way of seeing and believing and doing and acting in the world, to have a change of heart or mind, to see and believe and do and act in a new way. Even those first disciples who were fishing, and left behind their nets and their boats, their father and the hired men. They, in that broader sense, repent by having a change of heart and mind from the way they thought their lives were going to go to a new way that their lives will go in following Jesus. And we'll come back to this broad, deep sense of what repentance means for our lives as we connect with each of these stories now over the next 10 weeks. So let's see what that has to say to us about Jesus the Christ, about the good news, and about our repentance as we begin this morning in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to God's word for us today. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, And Jesus was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above them. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, Your sins are forgiven. 
Now, some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, I love this story from Mark chapter 2. Uh, If you are a person who appreciates uh, theater, uh, great drama, this is the kind of story, even told by Mark in his rather concise, clipped language that he uses throughout the gospel, is still chock full of the kind of details that's just prime to be illustrated in a children's story Bible or acted out by teenagers on a youth retreat. This is great drama. Jesus apparently, even early in his ministry, here at the beginning of chapter 2, has such a reputation that he's already speaking to sold-out crowds. The house literally is packed on this day. So packed, in fact, that the people have gathered in. They filled in the doorways. They're probably peering through the windows. They're standing so tightly shoulder to shoulder that they can smell perspiration that is not their own among those gathered on what I imagine to be a hot day. There's whispering among the crowd about who this is, what he's done. Did you hear that he, I heard from someone that he, they're telling these stories among each other as they're also trying to cock their ear and listen closely to what he has to say, wondering what he will do that will amaze them on this day. And then, Somewhere from outside, there is a group. There's four people carrying a man on a mat. And I imagine, as you might expect, that they try to get in the usual way, through the doorway. But they can't. The people are packed so tightly that they're either unable or unwilling to let them in. That's something we might flag to come back to later, by the way. And so... They are deeply compelled, nevertheless, by compassion for this man, so much so that like partygoers at a frat house, they do something insane. They get up on the roof, and then alarmingly, they start digging through the roof of somebody else's house. And we can begin to picture the scene. Here's Jesus, the great rabbi, standing with an audience's attention caught up. And all of a sudden, bits of thatch and mud start to filter down in front of him. People start to look up and around, wondering what is going on. Suddenly, big chunks fall as a hole is opened up in the roof. And I can only imagine Jesus looking around, saying, 
oh myself, what is going on around here? And then, and there's a lot of engineers in this congregation, I know. We can only imagine the way in which they try to construct or configure some contraption in order to lower this guy down carefully. Imagine how terrified the paralytic man is, thinking, hey, someone's come to help me today. And all of a sudden, oh no, someone's helping me through the hole in the roof, lowered down. And finally, they get him onto the ground, gently, we might hope right in front of Jesus. And after all of this drama has taken place, the real drama begins. The real drama of this story begins because what we expect to happen is not what happens. Jesus, seeing the faith of those who brought the paralytic, says, son, or really the word is, my child. My child, your sins are forgiven you. That's not what's supposed to happen. Everyone standing around, those on the roof, those below, the man on the mat, everyone is expecting to see a healing, a physical healing. The scribes are particularly annoyed. And I suspect they wouldn't have minded seeing a physical healing, but Jesus is now guilty of blasphemy, at least through their eyes, of claiming the power that only God has. And more importantly to them, playing the role that they have. Who is this guy, they think to themselves. We are the ones, we scribes, who are professionally trained. We're the ones who are authorized to oversee the processes and procedures, the religious rituals that provide for the provision of forgiveness. And by the way, we often do that for a small fee, which we collect at the temple. You see, at Jesus might be interrupting here, might be challenging a system in Galilee where the religious leaders at times exploited the poor, who were also, because of their poverty, more likely to be sick. And so those who are sick are sent to the temple in order to pay, in order for someone to mediate to God on their behalf, to intervene in their sickness, but then that makes them more poor, and in their increased poverty, they become more sick. Well, you can see how this is a vicious cycle that pays off for someone. And now, if Jesus can not only heal the body, but also forgive sins, he presents quite a double threat to them. At the same time, I imagine that those four friends are still on the roof. After all, they did all of this work, not for forgiveness, but for a healing. And so while they didn't have the same concerns or questions as the scribes, they might have been just as annoyed. They came to see a healing. The crowd came to see a healing. The paralyzed man certainly put up with all of this for a healing. But Jesus doesn't begin by offering the obviously necessary healing. He begins with forgiveness. And in doing so, he's all up in the scribes' business. And yet, to prove that he has the power, the authority to heal the soul and the spirit and the body as the Christ, the anointed one. He tells the man to pick up his mat and walk, and the man does just that. And now that same crowd that was so packed in, they couldn't have possibly let the man be brought into Jesus' presence through the doorway. They somehow now are able to part and let the man out. The one 
who was carried in passively by others is now the one who is able to actively, with his own agency, pick up his mat and carry the mat and himself out the door. And the drama ends. This is the kind of story, honestly, that we could reflect on for a month of Sundays. There's so many gems here for us to consider. And so I invite you this week to continue reading and reflecting on this story. Let the Spirit speak to you this week in your own devotions. But for our time today, I want to look at two parts of the story that are particularly meaningful. First, of course, is this idea about Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Yes, they expected to see a healing and not someone offering forgiveness. And for us, stepping back, we might wonder, how can forgiveness be offered if there's no confession of sin? The paralytic does not come in and confess his sin to Jesus, and yet Jesus offers him forgiveness anyway. Perhaps there is a moment here of true repentance, a change of heart and mind, not so much for the man who's on the mat, but for the crowd that's gathered in the room, those scribes, religious leaders included. And here's what I mean. We know that in Jesus' time, and perhaps in some ways it's still true in our time, that when people are sick, when they're diseased or depressed, broken or hurting, blame is placed upon them, or they or we place blame upon ourselves. What did they do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? Remember that great story about Jesus' encounter with the blind man? And what is asked by the crowd? Whose sin caused this man to be born blind, his own or his parents? There is always this inclination to seek blame. Assigning blame is very important sometimes in our lives. Something must have been wrong. In Jesus' day, and more subtly in ours, religion proclaimed that human suffering was often the consequence of human failure. One suffering is caused by an offense or a slight against God, or at least something that upsets the balance of prosperity. To be sick or broken meant that somebody had to have broken a rule. And in this sense, there's not only a physical paralysis that might be present in the room in front of Jesus, but also a social and religious paralysis because of the disease or the disability. And now by announcing the forgiveness of sins, Jesus is healing perhaps a broader broken relationship, the judgments, the condemnations, the prejudices between the paralytic and the rest of the community. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And here this forgiveness is offered in relationship to a broader kind of repentance. Everyone in the room, not just the man on the mat, is invited into a repentance to change their hearts and minds about their understanding between sickness, disease, brokenness, and its relationship to forgiveness and healing and wholeness. For what Jesus is doing in part is addressing and restoring and renewing the whole person that is present in front of him, restoring the person to his full self, his full reconciliation socially with the community. For the man to be offered forgiveness is an opportunity to wipe his slate clean in case there's any lingering doubts or judgments present for this man 
in his community. And we know the power that that kind of healing has in our time too. We know that our mental, emotional, our social and relational, our religious and spiritual selves are not compartmentalized in our lives. They are all interconnected. They are integrated. They're a part of our holistic, interconnected being. And in that sense, forgiveness plays a role in all of those aspects of our lives too. Some of you are familiar with either through participating in or a loved one who's been a part of a 12-step recovery program. And we know that in that program, which seeks to heal a physical illness and a mental and emotional illness and a spiritual illness, that one of the important steps of those 12 steps is forgiveness. A time in one's life to recognize the need to offer forgiveness and to receive forgiveness. It is part of a holistic way of thinking about healing from disease. And I wonder how often we experience paralysis in our lives, the kind of paralysis that perhaps comes from disease, but also from depression or brokenness or grief or disappointment. And in those moments, we too are invited to put Christ at the center of our lives and in our encounter with Christ to discover the one who's able to heal our spirits and our souls as well as our bodies, to experience a kind of repentance, a change of heart and mind about our own self-image and the images we carry of others around us, to discover that in our extension of forgiveness to ourselves and to others, that we carry Others, We lift them up so that they might experience the affirmation of wholeness and belovedness that God intends for them too. And that brings me to the second thing I noticed about the story this week. Notice that initially the paralytic is a passive actor in this drama. He has no lines and in the end only one bit of choreography to get up and walk. The main actors at the beginning of the story are the four friends who bring them in. Now, to be fair, they're not actually called friends in the text. I've inserted that word, not because they're given that title, but because they earn that title, don't they? Because who else would do this for someone except for a real friend? To see this man who's been paralyzed for how long, we do not know. To pick him up, to intentionally choose to carry him so far to the place where Jesus is teaching to try and maybe try again and fail to get through the doorway of the house and then to be compelled to go up on the roof, to dig through the roof, to rig up a way to lower the man down so that he might be placed at the feet of Jesus. Maybe a better word for them, another biblical word for them is neighbor. Maybe they have heard the call of Jesus to be a true neighbor. And I'm struck by the insight of these neighbors to know instinctively, perhaps, that the health and well-being of this man will be connected to his proximity to Jesus. Just being placed near Jesus will make a difference for this man. Now, let me be clear. I don't mean that in some manipulative nonsense way that televangelists tell us that, oh, just come near to Jesus and you'll be healed of your physical illness. We know that those kinds of healings are not guaranteed. Following Jesus is not a formulary to positive outcomes. That's not 
what I mean. But I am suggesting that our overall health and well-being as humans, our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being is impacted by our proximity to Jesus, by putting Jesus at the center of our lives. That's why here at First Press, we start our vision statement as a church by proclaiming that we strive to be Christ-centered. It matters to have Christ at the center of our lives. It has to do with shaping our orientation and focus. Being close to Jesus doesn't mean we're going to lead a stress-free life. God knows that the route includes taking up our cross and losing our life before we gain it. But there is something about being close to Jesus, by being Christ-centered, that orients us to a compassionate, open-hearted, generous, and joyful lightness of being. We tend to lose that when we get too far away from Jesus, the Christ. Our overall well-being is enhanced in proximity to Jesus, and the neighbors of the man paralyzed know this, and so they bring him to the presence of the Christ. I've been thinking a lot about the importance that neighbors play for one another. Some of you might recall the story from a few years ago in which a 17-year-old girl escapes out a window in her home. She makes her way to a neighbor's house and gets on a phone and calls for help. The police come to the home in a little town of Paris, California, where they discover that this girl and her 13 siblings have been imprisoned by their parents in their home for years. They've been badly abused and neglected in ways that we can hardly even begin to imagine. And so finally, help is brought in to rescue these kids, these brothers and sisters, and to get them out, we hope, into healing and hopeful foster families. What was so surprising as the media came in to cover the story was that they began to talk to some of the neighbors in a neighborhood where the homes were actually packed pretty close together. And the neighbors who had been on the same street as the Turpin family for years said, huh, it's surprising that we would live just a few feet away, just a couple of doors down all these years, and we never noticed anything wrong. They seemed odd, maybe, but we never really took time to notice. Now, I'm not saying this to finger wag to any of us, myself included, about the ways in which we might know or unfortunately don't yet know the people that live close to us, maybe on your own street or in your own building, the people that are also looking to be noticed, the people that also might need someone to pay attention to them, to carry them in a sense. It sort of reminds me of that announcement that we've gotten so used to hearing in the airport these days that we don't even pay attention to it. You know that announcement. If you see something, say something. If you see something suspicious, say something. And I always think, that's just good life advice. If you see something suspicious, say something Be a neighbor. Ask yourself, how am I like these faithful four? Move to urgency of action. Sometimes that might mean something as simple as shoveling the snow off a neighbor's driveway or taking them flowers or freshly baked goods, reaching out to somebody, holding them in prayer, noticing what's happening in their lives, 
That might be true of a coworker in the office next to yours or a student at the desk next to yours in class. To be moved by compassion to action. What does it look like for us to play the role of those faithful four here in our own church community or even in our broader northern Colorado community? So that others too might know the healing presence of Christ, might be brought into the presence of Christ just like the neighbors did for the paralytic, might be invited and compelled to put Christ at the center of their lives because heaven forbid that we should be like the ones who were standing there to hear Jesus that day. Comforting ourselves with the fact that we came to hear Jesus, we're doing the right things, but nobody else can get in because we're all packed in and we don't take time to notice those who are trying to get in around us. And maybe in that sense, we too are being called to repentance, (laughs) to having a change of heart or mind, to see one another differently, to see the ones who are not yet at the table, the ones not yet included, the ones who need to be noticed because of what's happening in their lives. God might be calling us too, individually or corporately as a church at times, to be part of the faithful four, carrying others bringing them to the presence of Christ. The other thing I noticed in that story from the Turpin family was their interview with the grandparents of the kids, the parents of the couple that had abused these children. The grandparents were shocked and they said, you know, the thing is, they are a Christian family. These kids were raised in what we thought was a Christian home. They were homeschooled in that home. Part of their curriculum was to memorize passages of Scripture, sometimes to memorize entire books of the Bible. And I couldn't help but wonder if the children trapped in that house, abused and abandoned, had ever read and memorized a story in Mark chapter 2. A story about Neighbors who were so moved with compassion that they were compelled to act on behalf of someone else, to insert themselves into somebody else's life for their sake. I wonder if those children memorized a story about the Christ whose time has come, whose kingdom was fulfilled and had arrived, a kingdom where they would no longer experience brokenness and neglect or shame or blame or doubt, or distress, but instead, because of the intervention of the neighbors, they might experience the good news embodied by others who are willing to go the extra mile, who would dig a hole in a roof if needed, so that they might be able to experience the healing light that Christ offers to us all. That's my prayer for us this morning, that we might all live into that embodiment of Christ's kingdom come. A community gathered, forgiven, and set free, where our spirits, our minds, and our bodies might be healed so that we too can get up, pick up our mats, and walk out in love, walk forward in hope, a living witness to the power and the promise and the purposes of Christ. And I suspect that when we do, then others, like that crowd gathered 2,000 years ago, will be amazed, and they too will give glory to God. Amen.